of Nehemiah chapter 2. <clears throat> in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city of, in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of, Trans of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me with safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king also sent an army, and army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat, the Horonite and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this. They were very much disturbed that someone had come to prom promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone my, what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up to the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered by the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. 
Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let, let us start building. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, nice to see you. My name is Paul, if I haven't met you. We're in Nehemiah chapter 2, and I will pray for us tonight. Our Father, it's good to be here. It's good to gather with your people and to sit under your word. And we pray that as we listen to you tonight, that we'd have ears to hear. Our Father, we long to know you better. We long to be the men and women of God that you've called us to be. Uh, so speak, Lord, because we are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. It was uh, 2004 that I sat in the coffee shop right next door, what is now the uh, Village Cafe, and I sat with a man called Ernest Chow, who was the rector of this church in 2004. And I said to him, I I'd like to start an evening service in your building because you don't currently have one. And I sat opposite him, and he's such a gracious, godly man. He said, I would love you to do that. I would love to see the gospel guide in Kirby. And the gracious hand of God was upon me that afternoon. And because of his graciousness, this building was open to start church by the bridge. I sat in the office of the mayor of North Sydney a few years ago, Julie Gibson. And she talked about cows under the bridge. She said, I love what you're doing. And he said, can we give you some money? I swallowed hard and I said, we'd like to have $10,000. He said, how about fifteen? And the gracious hand of God was upon me that afternoon. I sat with some nominators up at Neutral Bay a couple of years ago and they invited me to become the acting rector of Neutral Bay in this amazing partnership and the gracious hand of God was upon me that afternoon. I sat on the plane to London 10 days ago thinking, what am I doing going to this conference over in London? And I was sent by God to meet some extraordinary people and to learn some extraordinary things. And the gracious hand of God was upon me during that trip. And that's the language of Nehemiah. The, the gracious hand of God was on me, he says. He said it twice in our passage, in verse 8 and in verse 18. The gracious hand of my God was on me. Let me ask you, do you speak like that? Do you live like that as though your lives are in God's hands? 
that God's gracious hand is over your life and God's gracious hand is under your life. God's gracious hand giving you what you do not deserve and providing what you don't expect. Uh, God's gracious hand giving us what you ask in your prayer life and so often giving, often giving you more than you ever ask or imagine. And God's gracious hand not answering the prayer the way that you would like it answered because he knows best. God's gracious hand in the big things of life, you know, providing a house or a job or a church or a friend, or God's gracious hand in the, the small moments in life where you bump into that person in the street by accident and they give you a word or a verse that you just need to hear at that moment. God's gracious hand when life goes according to your plan. Because God who provides and God protects and God directs. And God's gracious hand when life does not go according to your plan, when you are disappointed, when you are sad, when you're confused, but God's hand is still there on your life and over your life, his ways, his will. Do you live like that? Do you speak like that? Do you ever think that your lives are under his gracious hand? Because when you do, it actually liberates you from this, this me-centered theology. And it liberates you from striving so hard. And it liberates you from this me-centered success. And it just reminds you that your lives are in his hands. And he's got you. He really has got you. And God has placed you here on this earth for a reason. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. You are loved by God. God is your heavenly father. And he knows you. And he cares for you. And he's called you to be part of his family, part of his kingdom. And you're left here on earth to, to serve him and to obey him and to honor him and to magnify him. And you've got a part to play in the building up of his church, of his kingdom. All under his gracious hand. Do you ever think like that? I'm a child of God, loved by a heavenly father, called by him to play my part in the building of his kingdom. All under his gracious, mighty hand. Ephesians 2 says this, We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That's why we're here, to do good works, to play our part in the building of his kingdom. And we're not like the people in Nehemiah who were called to rebuild a wall. That's been done back in, a, in BC 445. This passage is not a mandate for another church building project and praise God for that. And we're not called to literally restore Jerusalem because the Lord Jesus Christ has done that, had he, 2,000 years ago. We're not called to rebuild walls or to restore Jerusalem but we are called to build up God's kingdom. We are called to make the name of Jesus known. We are called to serve Jesus, to obey Jesus, to build his church, to make disciples of all nations, to live such distinctive lives among the pagans that they see and praise our Heavenly Father. We're called to live differently. And that's what we're here for. That's what life's about. Building God's kingdom under his gracious hand. So in Nehemiah, this amazing man of God who is called by God and equipped by God and tasked by God to rebuild the walls. 
It's 445 BC and God's people have returned from exile. They are back in Jerusalem. The temple's been rebuilt. Worship has been reestablished. But the city itself is not being rebuilt. It lies in ruins. And that picture of a city in ruins without the walls is a picture of vulnerability. They're open to attack. They're open to ridicule. It's a picture of brokenness. And when Nehemiah heard about the plight, he is heartbroken. Remember that in chapter 1, he weeps, he fasts, he prays. He's, he prays for God's honour. He prays for God's forgiveness. He prays for restoration. He prays for the people. He has his passion, this heart, to see God's name made known again in that city. Do you have that passion? Do you have that heart? As you wander through your suburb, or you wander through Kiribati, do you know there's about... 25,000 lost people here in Kiribati. Do you live in a way that longs to see people come to know Christ and God's name honoured? In chapter 2, in our chapter tonight, Nehemiah starts to act, to do something about it. And later on in the sermon, we'll learn three lessons about playing our part in the building of God's kingdom. But I want you to understand the story. It is a story, it's history. So pick up your Bibles. We're told in the end of chapter 1 that Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king. It's an important job and a great job. His, his job, get this, is to taste wine all day. To taste the wine to make sure the wine is not poisoned. And according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no one's allowed to be sad in the presence of the king. That was forbidden. Let's pick up the story in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, just so you know, that's about March, April time. It's springtime in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So it's four months after Nehemiah first heard about the plight of Jerusalem. So Nehemiah's been sad for four months. Every day he's been sad about God's people and sad about God's place. And for four months he's kept that sadness hidden. Every day put on a fake smile. We're good at that, aren't we? Put on a fake smile. Uh, one day he lets his guard down and the king sees him sad. And so he asks verse 2, why does your face look so sad, Nehemiah? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. He, he, he's spot on. He is sad of heart. He's sad about God's kingdom and sad about God's place and God's people. And he's afraid, verse 2, because... He's afraid the king could punish him for being sad. He's really honest in verse 3. May the king live forever. He's very respectful. May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad? Because the city of God, the place of God with the temple of God and the people of God, it lies in ruins. And its gates have been destroyed by fire. He's bold. He's courageous. He's talking to a pagan king and says, my people and the city is being destroyed. It is broken. And the king said to me, what is it you want? That's a great question to be asked by an unbeliever. What is it you want? It's a gift from the Lord in that question. But you spot the maturity of Nehemiah. He, he's not this young, ambitious man who makes all the demands. He is he, a man of prayer. He is totally dependent on his God. See that in verse 4? 
What do you want, says the king? And then I pray to the God of heaven. That quick prayer, that arrow prayer, God help me. I love that. This man is constantly talking to God, dependent on God every moment. Okay, God, here we go. Give me the words to say now, God. And so I answer the king, verse 5. If it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor, he's respectful again. He knows who he's talking to. Let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. Now, do you understand how bold that request is? He's talking to a pagan king saying, will you let me go? Will you release me from your service to go and rebuild the city and serve my God? It's like you standing before your boss at work and saying, uh, could I have a year off please to go and serve on the mission field? I'd like, to go, I'd like to go and to serve my Lord Jesus Christ, my Saviour, my King. Could you give me time off to do that? Actually, it's bolder than that. He goes on to ask for letters for safety and letters to get timber to rebuild the temple and, and, and timber to build his own house. It's like you standing for your boss saying, I'd like to take a year out. I'd like to go on the mission field and could you organise for these other companies to pay for me whilst I'm away? It's all it's audacious. But you know, God can do his work even through the hands of the unbeliever, can't he? God can stir the hearts of the most unlikely people to support gospel work. And God's hand was very gracious. The king lets him go and the king sends letters and the king even sends cavalry and officers. A pagan king funding, supporting, equipping the building of God's kingdom. I love that. I've seen God do that here in Kiribati, actually. It was about six years ago, I was walking past church and a, a member of our community stopped me. And said, so I love what's happening at church by the bridge. I, I'm not a believer myself. I'd like to write a check for $10,000 for the work you're doing as a church. That's extraordinary. The gracious hand of God was upon us. And not everyone's supportive, are they? Verse 10, you meet these baddies, Sambalat and, and Tobiah. And they hate the fact that God's name, God's honor, God's glory is going to be returned to Jerusalem. They hate the fact that God's name and God's people might be cared for. And I hope you know that about building the kingdom, that not everyone's going to like it. We ran a mega Monday up at Neutral Bay a couple of weeks ago. The neighbours didn't like that. neighbours came in saying, we don't want this in our church, we don't like this Christian thing, this is our suburb, this is our community. No place for God here. And then my arrives in verse 11, he went to Jerusalem, we don't know how he got there, assumedly on a donkey or on a horse or something. After staying for three days, he, he, he sits for three days. He doesn't storm into this city and say, here I am, the solution to your problems, the great leader, the great architect, the great builder. He's a man with a plan. And so he sets out during the night with just a few other people and he goes to inspect how bad it really is. And in verses 13 down to 16, you have a geography lesson of the, the valley gate and the jackal well and the dung gate. But it's not about geography, it's about theology. Do you spot that? Three times we're told the walls have broken down, the gates have been destroyed by fire. It's a picture of brokenness, a picture of 
decay and destruction because God's place and God's people are broken. And this great leader rallies the troops. He's realistic in verse 17. You see the trouble we are in? We are in. Not just me, but we. Not just you, but we. Because God's city, Jerusalem, lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned. Come, let us together rebuild the walls and we will no longer be in distress. I also talk about the gracious hand of my God on me. And what do the people say? No, that's too hard. No, Nehemiah, you do it. I'm busy. No, they said, verse 18, let us start rebuilding. We're in for this. This is, this is important to us. We love this. We want God's city. We want God's place. We want God's name. We want God's fame to be made known again. Let's start rebuilding. It's like me speaking at the AGM at Church Bridge and saying, hey, church, we're going to start two new congregations next year. And everyone gets on their feet and says, yes, let's do this. We're going to do three more Christianity Explorer courses. What a great idea. Let's get behind this. You know, there's 25,000 lost people. We're going to take a church into the pub. We're going to take a church into the city. We're going to take a church into our schools. And all of you guys say, yes, let's rebuild the kingdom. Now, these people are in for it. They're up for it. Why? Because they are passionate about God's name and God's glory and God's city and God's fame. Is that how you feel? You just want God to be honoured. You just want God to be glorified. He's not asking you to rebuild a wall. He's not asking you to rebuild a city. He's just asking you to live in a way that makes Jesus famous. There's three things we learn from Nehemiah. Three simple words. Here's the first word, prayer. Nehemiah's a man of prayer. He loved to pray. Eleven times in 13 chapters we're told he is praying. It's in his veins. It's non-negotiable for Nehemiah. It's who he is. He's a child of God. So of course he spends time with his heavenly father. And we saw that back in chapter one. He wept, he mourned, he fasted, he prayed. This very structured, organized prayer. This detailed prayer. This extended prayer. But remember there's four months between chapter one and chapter two. What's he doing for those four months? He's praying. Praying day after day after day that God would find a way, would make the way, would open the way the city could be rebuilt. He's a man who's waiting on the Lord. You know, in ministry, I have never, ever regretted the time I've spent in prayer. I've never regretted time spent praying and seeking God's wisdom and, and searching after, after God's ways. I've often regretted rushing into action and plans without prayer. So he waits for four months. That's a long time to wait for God to answer, isn't it? Four months of praying. No. Abraham waited 25 years. Joseph waited for two years. Israel waited for 40 years. Nehemiah waited prayerfully for four months every day. Lord, Lord, help me. Lord, send me. And then the day comes. Today is the day where the king says to him, what is it you want, Nehemiah? 
And Nehemiah knows what he wants. He wants to see God honoured, God's people built up, God's walls rebuilt. But what does he do in chapter 2, verse 4? Look at it again. I prayed again to the God of heaven. That quick arrow prayer, Lord, help me. Lord, I need you. Lord, give me wisdom right now. Lord, open my mouth right now. Help me to speak. So let me ask you, how's your prayer life? How's your personal prayer life? How's your dependence on the Lord? How's your love for the Lord? How's your intimacy with God? Are you waiting on him? Are you talking to him? Are you pleading with him? Are you crying out to him? I mean, do you have these extended period of prayers and do you have those arrow prayers? When you walk into a meeting at work that you know is going to be hard, do you shoot up a prayer to God? And when you come out of that meeting where he's answered your prayer, do you thank him for it? As you're about to meet that friend who's not a believer, do you, do you shoot an arrow prayer saying, Lord, give me wisdom here, the words to say. Lord, uh, give me an opportunity now to, to talk about Jesus. I had one of those moments last week. Remember my friend Phil who went missing last year? We were all praying for him last year. I met with him in a cafe in, in London just last Tuesday. And I was praying, Lord, give me an opportunity, give me an opportunity. And it came, praise God for that. Is your whole life marked by this, this prayerfulness and this dependence on God? If we're going to build God's kingdom, we need to pray. I've had so much flack in the last couple of years about our prayer meetings, our monthly prayer meetings. Everyone's saying, they're too often. They disrupt our connect groups. Once a month, why are we praying once a month? Why pray once a month? Because prayer is the most important thing that we do. There's no better use of time than to pray, to wait on God and to plead, on, plead with God, to listen to God, to spend time seeking his wisdom rather than just spending all the time talking to each other. There's nothing more important than prayer, nothing. Remember that list of the five people that we asked you to pray for this year? How are you going with that? You pray for them every day? I was chatting to a pastor last week and he talked about his daily routine. Yes, he prays in the morning. Yes, he prays in the evening. But every lunchtime he goes on a 20-minute prayer walk around his parish. Just 20 minutes walking around his parish, just praying. What a great ministry that is. Imagine if before... 5.30 service every week at 5 o'clock. Imagine if half an hour before there was a mass of people out there in the hub praying. Uh, not just running through the order of service and not just safe prayers and small prayers, but big prayers. On our knees, pleading with God that he would build his kingdom, that he bring in the lost. Let's pray. I hope you know that to do anything well, we must seek God's help in prayer. And when we do that, God gets all the glory. When we beg and we plead and we cry out, we start to use the language of the gracious hand of God is on me. Because it's God's work, not our work. Now these walls will be built not because of Nehemiah's great leadership and not because of his great wisdom or his planning or his communication or his organisation because the gracious hand of God was on him. Now, why was this unbelieving pagan king moved to help? Because of prayer. I'm so thankful, you know, that God often makes us wait. He does often make us wait, doesn't he? Often makes us wait, and we ask again and again and again. Because imagine if Nehemiah's prayer of chapter 1 had been answered immediately. 
what you then find is a man who goes straight into action with building projects and architects' plans and fundraising, and it would all be about Nehemiah and all about the people, and not about God and God's name and God's fame and God's glory. We must pray. Number two, we must plan. Nehemiah is not against planning. God is not against planning. Prayer and planning are not mutually exclusive. It's not unspiritual to plan. We need both. Nehemiah is planning. He knows what he needs. So when the king says to him in verse 6, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? He knows that. He sets a time and he knows what he needs. He asks, he needs letters from verse 7 so he has a safe conduct. He needs a letter for the keeper of the rural park in verse 8 so he can get timber to make the beams for the gates and the uh, beams for the uh, temple and for his own residence. And when he arrives in Jerusalem, he plans. He goes out on a bit of a journey for a few days to look how bad it is and to work out exactly what needs to happen and how to motivate the people. He's a planner. And as somebody who's a bit of a control freak, I quite like that about him. He knows what he wants to do or needs to do to build God's kingdom. So let me ask you, how are you planning to reach the people you know and love with the gospel? What is your plan to share your life and share your faith with the people that only you know? What's our plan as a church to reach those 25,000 people who are lost in this area? What's our plan as a church to reach our kids in our schools who have never heard about Jesus? What's our plan as a church to reach people who are not going to just walk through our doors? What is your plan? And we're trying to help you. We've given you cards where you can write people's names on and put them in your Bible. We produce templates so you can invite people to Christianity Explored or to Alpha. We put on nice courses for you to come to. Easy invites, you know, evening at the Oaks. But you're getting on board with these plans. Start doing it and personalize your plan for how you are going to build God's kingdom. The third thing he had was people. He's a man of prayer, he's a man of plans, he's a man of people. He's not a one-man band, is Nehemiah. He did not try and build this wall by himself. When I left Bible College 20 years ago, I was, I guess, quite idealistic. You know, I was going to build God's church. Had all the plans on a piece of paper how I was going to grow God's kingdom. And I walked into church in my first job in London. I looked out at the people that God had given me to work with. And they were a motley crew, really. Different ages, different stages. Difficult people. Messed up people, discouraged people, broken people. Annoying people. And to my sin and to my shame, I walked out thinking, oh, I'll do it without them. I can do it without them. I don't need them. I can build God's kingdom. I can build God's church. God does not ask us to build his kingdom by ourselves. 
He asks us to work as a team, to work together. And Nehemiah is this beautiful, beautiful model of people working together. And he worked with God's people who were already back in Jerusalem. Many were demoralized, many were tired, many were weary. But he empowers them and he inspires them. He identifies with them in verse 17. See that? See the trouble we are in? Not, not I, not you, but we. Jerusalem's light lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us together rebuild the wall and we will no longer be in disgrace. Verse 18, let us start rebuilding, they say. And Nehemiah brings this unity. He brings this commonality. He says, we're going to do this together because we can do more together than we can apart. Do you know that? You can do more together than you can apart. We're not called to do everything by ourselves. It's not called the 20% doing the 80% of the work. It's all the people, all together, working together for the building of God's kingdom. And when you go home tonight, read chapter 3. It's an incredible chapter. Don't skip over it. Lots of weird names. But what Nehemiah does, he organizes all the people into different groups. There are 45 sections of the wall. He gets 40 work crews together. And it's great delegation. And he organizes them in teams according to their geography, according to their interests, according to their strengths. As you read chapter 3, there are people from all walks of life. There are priests and there are musicians and there are perfumers and there are professionals and there are traders. And they're all ages, all stages, all working together for the common goal, the common good of rebuilding the wall. Now here's a question for you. When you work together, when God's people work together, how long did it take them to rebuild this wall? Do you know? 52 days. 52 days when they all worked together as a team. Can you imagine if they'd been fighting and micromanaging? Can you imagine if a few people said, it's not my work, other people can do that work. It would have taken months, it would have taken years. Can you imagine if Nehemiah had tried to rebuild the wall by himself? It would have taken decades. But when God's people worked together, extraordinary things happened. We've all got a part to play, haven't we? If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ here tonight, you've got a part to play in the building of God's kingdom. You've got a part to play in the growing of his church. We're all needed. No one is not needed. Do you ever imagine what God could do here at Church by the Bridge if we all worked together? If everyone served, if everyone was committed, if there was no whinging, no fighting, no competition. Can you imagine if we worked together as one and we stopped becoming very congregational-based? Can you imagine what we could do for God and for his kingdom if we stopped thinking separation and start thinking the word together? Can you imagine what you might do for God's kingdom if everyone took their part? From the oldest here to the youngest, from the newest Christian to the person who's been a Christian for 60 years, no competition, no fighting, praising each other's gifts, celebrating each other's differences, but working together with a common cause and a common goal of making God's name famous again.
what could we do? Those who know me know that I like big visions of what God could do here in Kirby and beyond. Thousands of lost souls could be saved if we all work together. We are better together, you know. So we are here to build God's kingdom. You've got prayer, you've got planning, you've got people. But please remember it's God who grows his church, not you. Any growth that he gives is because of his gracious hand. So make sure he gets all the glory. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious God whose hand is on us and over us. Father, thank you for using us to build your kingdom, to make Jesus known. Thank you, Lord, for using us to make your name famous and to bring you the honor and the glory that is rightly yours. Father, please help us to work together for the the building up of your kingdom. And may you get all the honor and the glory. In Jesus' name.